The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Euros. England supporters high on mead and hemp like a 16th century freshers week as the Dutch put a banging van der Donk on it. Transfers. Bowley blows big bucks on Sterling and Koulibaly whilst PSG gets set for a clear out. We reminisce on another memorable World Cup and more in this Totally Football Show. Good day to you, listener. It is the 14th of July for us. I'm Matt Davis-Adams here for one show only in place of Jimbo. I'm joined by a fine panel too. It comprises Tom Williams. Hi, Tom. Hi, Matt. Lindsay Hooper's back with us too. Hi, Lindsay. Hello, Matt. And last but not least, Michael Cox. How are you doing, Michael? I'm very well. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Michael's off to the Lowry in Manchester for a special Totally Football Show live season preview on August the 9th. Head to thelowry.com for tickets. There are still some up for grabs. They are competitively priced too. Uh, Michael joined by Duncan Alexander and Julian Laurent and Jibbo, of course, on stage. Uh, the Lowry have also got the Gruffalo on at lunchtime that date, so maybe maybe do a double header. Up to you, listener, but do head to thelowry.com to get some tickets if you would like. Right then, plenty's happened in the wide world of football since we last spoke. Not least, one of the best performances by an England team in ever. We'll talk about that next. This is the Totally Purple Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. So, on Monday night, in Brighton, this happened. Oh, Walsh! And the rebound is in! And Beth Mead does have a hat-trick! And that just about puts the cherry on top of the icing, on top of this cake. Record-breaking, history-making barnstorming performance from England. They have arrived at Euro 2022. Uh, Lindsay, you were there to witness this. Where are we ranking this in in terms of all-time performances from England? And and are we thinking this is going to be the high watermark of this tournament? Or or is this just going to be one step on the path to glory? Well, the players tell me there's more to come. Ella Toon said that... If you think that that's something, watch them in training when they're on their one-on-ones. There's a whole other level. They think that there's even more that they could get out of a a performance. And it might even come against Northern Ireland, which is the next game, but we will see. I think in terms of overall, I would put it right up there as the top game that I and top performance, certainly first half performance, that I've ever seen from the Lionesses. And I've seen some brilliant teams over the years. But just something about this performance whereby everyone was clicking at the same time. Because often we have players who will take on the mantle, they'll have some form whilst others dip out a little bit. And it wasn't like that. It was collective. You looked across the pitch and every single player played to their best on that day. Um, And yeah, broke records in the meantime. So we have to put it up there as the best at the moment. I think the further we go in the competition, even if it was half the score, if they if they were to dismantle Germany, Matt, 4-0, I think it, it could top it, but we'll see. We mentioned on Monday's show about, about Ellen White and, you know, potentially the chat being about her not getting a goal in the tournament. Obviously, she did that. And it was that front four, wasn't it, of her, Mead and Hemp, but Frank Kirby in behind them as well, which was just too much for Norway to handle. I mean, how bad were Norway and how much was it England's quality? Well, Norway had a weak point. Well, they had two weak points, probably in their in their fullback area, and England just kept going at them. It was like picking a scab over and over. And can I just say that is the most disgusting football related metaphor that I think I've ever heard? But Lindsay, please continue. <laughs> 
Surely it's, like, surely it's like picking picking someone else's scab. No, maybe that kind of works. Yeah. Oh, and that's even grosser. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I just felt that from from Norway's point of view, nothing was changed. And at 4-0, I started looking towards the Norway bench. You know, is anything going to change here? Are they going to bring on a sub? We've seen it happen before in a first half performance when someone's been shred to pieces. And at 5-0, nothing happened. At 6-0, you think, come on. I mean, you're not going to get back from this game now going into a break. So I did feel for them because they weren't helped out by their own coach, this Norway side. But there were definitely weaker areas in defence. The fact is that the front three, which we know can be prolific for Norway, never got a chance to get into the game. So we didn't see what Hansen could do, what Hegerberry can do. So I think it is one of those where you just say for, for England, attack was the best form of defence and they never relented. The energy levels were incredible because every time they went forward, you thought, well, this could actually result in a goal. But they didn't stop using the wits. They didn't stop running. The kilometres that they they used distance-wise, I think Ellen White posted some impressive, impressive figures there as well. You've got to say that it was one of those performances where you look at Serena and what she's asking of them and you can understand why in the past they've beaten Latvia 20-0 because they can just keep going once they're in their stride. Marco, you've written about this for The Athletic, specifically on Serena Wiegmann. It's um, it's all about the width and the pressing, isn't it? And kind of having a foreign coach, but trying to bring foreign football to England rather than in a Capello or Sven style of being very English about it. Yeah, I mean, it is quite a transformation from how England played under Phil Neville. And I think Neville sometimes gets too much stick for his performance as England manager because England got to the World Cup semi-final. They're a missed penalty and a VAR offside away from taking USA to extra time. But the style of football has changed completely. I mean, Neville really focused on, I think, on individuals and on strength and physicality and those kind of things. Whereas now England are playing very slick football, even though the margin of victory was very different from the opening game against Austria. I think there were some familiar patterns, particularly the way that the wingers really stretched the play and just open up gaps for the midfielders to burst into. I think that was the key feature. Norway, it must be said, I mean, defensively, they were just atrocious. You know, it wasn't just they conceded eight. I think when you look at the expected goals, it was it was up there. It wasn't like England were hitting long ranges that were finding the top corner. You know, they were just going through again and again. And I must say, I've, I've rarely seen a back four that just doesn't seem to have any relationship. The left-back Blackstad, who really is a midfielder, was getting dragged out to the touchline. And then Thoris Dottier, who's the left-sided centre-back, was kind of between the width of the posts. And you have... 30 yards between them for Stanway or Kirby or whoever to run through. But as Lindsay says, England were just relentless and they exploited it really well. I was actually at the game as well and I was watching the warm-up beforehand and just the quality of England's shooting was amazing. There was a spell of about 20, you know, just standard practice shots. The coach lays the ball off and someone finishes. And they were just all going absolute top corner. And I thought, I mean, they probably do that exercise usually, but after the first game, people were saying, well, England need to be more ruthless in front of goal. But... It's almost like every criticism of, of the side over the last two or three weeks has just been disproved because after the friendlies, we were saying, well, they don't start games quickly enough. They always score goals in the second half and they're 6-0 up at half time against the you know second strongest side in the group. It was an incredible night. So Northern Ireland on Friday to finish the group stage, England already qualified. What kind of what kind of approach would you make to this, Tom, if you were picking the team? Are you going all 11 changes or just a couple to minimise the potential disruption to this very settled team? 
Well, it's the classic third group game conundrum, isn't it? This holds true for, for all major tournaments. When you've got a team who are on a good dynamic, the temptation is to just leave things as they are. But then at the same time, when you've got a squad to manage, can you keep those players happy if they haven't got any minutes at all? So I, I guess we'll probably see, I don't know, maybe somewhere, something halfway between the two, you know, some changes. But I think, yeah, when, when you do have... Um, you know, when you do have that sort of dynamic and particularly with the way that England clicked um, in that first half against Norway, they'll be wary about shaking things up too much, I'd have thought. From being at the, the training base, the sense that I'm getting is there won't be that many changes. Serena seems to be wanting to talk about the amount of rest days that the, the team would have if they weren't to play, which indicates to me that she wants to carry on some some continuity. I would be really surprised though if there isn't a couple of changes, two or three. I think Ella Toon could be in in line for maybe a first start, someone like that in midfield. And I don't know that Serena is that bothered either about individual accolades. So don't be surprised if she whips off and doesn't or doesn't start Beth Mead and Ellen White, who are in great contention for a golden boot because she isn't bothered about stuff like that. She she really just wants to get the best out of her team on that day. But yeah, I don't think it will be six, seven changes. I could be disproved, but I, I don't get that sense. Interesting that, Michael, because obviously there's the argument that, that you don't want unhappy players in the squad kind of bringing everybody down if they're not playing. But also we're seeing not just injuries, but quite a lot of COVID cases during this tournament. So it might be a case where you need to make a change later on. And if you're bringing in somebody who hasn't played much, that's less than ideal. So I guess that's the other side of you know saying, let's make 11 changes for this game that doesn't matter so much. Yeah, yeah, that is true. I think you'll find a balance. I think there's probably a couple of other attacking players, it would be good to give some minutes to maybe Chloe Kelly. But I think considering the defence is quite new as a unit, I mean, obviously Leah Williamson had played in midfield throughout much of the last year. Rachel Daly's gone in at left back, hasn't played there that much. So I can see, uh, you know, if, if what Lindsay says is true, I can and see why she would want to keep like this the base of the side together and just give them more minutes as a unit. But I think maybe in the wide positions, when you've got dynamic players and there's maybe a bit more risk of injury, then, you know, why not bring in a couple of, of wide players? But I mean, there's five subs even. I mean, even against Norway, a lot of the players got a rest. Ellen White only played 57 minutes. Frank Kirby played 57 minutes. So they're not going to be in the red zone. Uh, also this week, Denmark recovered from their hammering by Germany to squeeze past Finland and keep alive their hopes of qualifying. Germany are through to the last eight. They beat Spain 2-0 on Tuesday. Clara Ball and Alex Pop got the goals, means it'll be either Spain or Denmark going through with Germany from Group B. They meet on Saturday with Spain needing to avoid defeat to advance ahead of the Danes. Whilst on Wednesday night, the Netherlands beat Portugal by three goals to two, a thriller this one at Lee Sports Village. Some concerns here, Lindsay, for the Netherlands in the way that they let a two-goal lead slip, albeit they came back to win it. But but actually a pretty impressive result when you look at the team that they had to put out. No Miedemar, no Gronen because of COVID and Nick Nguyen and Sari van Veenendaal also absent through injury. I was impressed that they managed to get the win here. I mean, the overall performance probably will have some criticism attached to it because, again, I think when you look at the Dutch lineup, we're seeing glimpses of what they're capable of, but not for a consistent period. And I think that's the problem. I mean, 
They have a great physical presence that they can put in the box. I thought that was to their advantage against a side like Portugal, and they use that really well to open up. But it came down to that bit of individual spark. We saw it with the turn from Miedemar last time, and I think this time it was down to Van der Donk to produce that brilliant goal, the winner. But if you compare to what I was saying about England, this isn't a collective unit yet. I think you look at the Netherlands and there is uh, times when you look across and you think, have they played with each other enough? They're, they're trying to work out each other's duties. We know that Mark Parsons has tried to play this high line, which they're not completely comfortable with yet. So they may grow as this tournament grows. When I do speak to Dutch journalists, experts who've been following them for years, they do keep warning me, you know, they do turn it on in major tournaments, but I can't help when I'm trying to dissect the Netherlands at the moment, but just think that they they aren't going to be in the last four. I, I just can't see them there at the minute, but maybe the performances will start to turn around. Sweden, another team tipped to do well in the tournament before it started. They beat Switzerland by two goals to one also on Wednesday. Real tournament group stage vibe to this one. Apparently, Michael ended well, though, didn't it? Two cracking goals to finish from from Backman and then the winner from the 19-year-old Hannah Benison. Yeah, this was a funny game. I don't think there's been a really bad game in the Euros so far. I think it's been really good quality. But the first half of this I found difficult to watch. And it did remind me of like World Cups and Euros gone by where you just... It looked really hot. It was quite early. It was a 5pm kickoff in this heat. It was just so slow. I was just waiting for something to happen. And I mean, Sweden have been slightly underwhelming so far. I think in terms of their front four... Um, you could say on paper they're the strongest attacking unit in the tournament, but not quite clicking. They played two different systems. Obviously, Blackstinius wasn't fit for the first game. Didn't look that sharp here. And it seems like, I mean, at the moment, rather than being a real cohesive attacking unit, they just seem really dependent on Frulina Rolfa, who I think has been pretty much as good as any player in the tournament so far. So she scored the opener. And then Hannah Benison, who I thought came on and made a good impact in the first game, scored a really great goal here. Long ranger. Maybe it wasn't as spectacular as Van der Donk's, but it's quite an unusual goal, I thought, to kind of generate the power and the kind of whip across a body from the ball rolling in that direction. I thought it was a really good strike. So I think she'll come into the side. I mean, it's interesting what, what Lindsay says about the Netherlands, because... I mean, whoever wins and comes second in this group, you think they're going to get very different tasks. The runner-up, well, almost certainly going to get France. Whereas the winner, I'd fancy them to beat anyone else from Group D. So it's almost going to come down to a shootout in the final group game, down to goal difference, really, whether Sweden score more against Portugal or Netherlands score more against Switzerland. But I agree. I mean, I don't think either of those sides have been particularly impressive so far. Although I think Netherlands have been so damaged by just injuries. I mean, they had two players go off in the first half of the first game, obviously the COVID cases. They just don't seem to have been able to get any cohesion together. Although I think Mark Parsons deserves credit for, I think in both games, he's made a a bit of a tweak in the second half. And that's really worked. I mean, first game he put Giroud in the centre, having started on the right and she scored. And Van der Donk did the same in this game. And and the winger, uh, Pevlova, has, has made a great impact from the bench. So they've clearly got some level of strength and depth. But yeah, I think they'll both be desperate to avoid France after their opening day performance. 
I mean, it was eclipsed a little bit by the, the two goals that followed, but I thought Rolfo's opener was one of the most nicely constructed goals that we've seen in the tournament so far. Really classic, sort of bit of interplay, ball up to, to the forward, lay off, first time pass, and then a sort of third woman run and tucked it away really nicely. And like Michael said, cracking finish from Hannah Benison as well with the ball sort of running across her body from, from the left-hand side. I thought almost all the goals in, in the two games yesterday were, were, were pretty decent. I thought the Netherlands would be rubbing their hands together, though, off the back of this one, because for Switzerland, who had that stomach bug, it didn't seem to play into this. I mean, we, we were told that the team was going to pretty much be wiped out, whether it was a gastroenteritis bug or whether it was just something else. And then they only made one change. They looked to cope pretty admirably in this one. But we know that they were doing tactical sessions over Zoom. They missed several training sessions prior to this match. So I wonder if they're going to be depleted and that could really play into the Netherlands' hands. Going to be an interesting final round of group games there. Tonight, Thursday, Italy play against Iceland and it's France versus Belgium too, as we mentioned, Northern Ireland of England on Friday night. You can hear about those games on the Athletic Women's Football Podcast with you daily throughout the tournament. I'm hosting that on Friday. Many thanks to Alan Sugar for kicking down that particular <laughs> door for me. Can I just point out that unlike uh, Ian Wright, who was obviously called up with, you know, half an hour to go. Yeah, right. Um, we, we had you booked in for that for, for ages, Max. <laughs> Can confirm, yeah. Um, Tom, you're going to be going to a quarterfinal next week. Obviously, France had that terrific result in their first game, but we're, we're all kind of like that Simpsons meme of the whole class looking around at Bart waiting for him to say, I didn't do it, waiting for France to kind of do something crazy and, and have a big fallout. Any sign of that so far? No, it all seems to be quite smooth sailing, I think. And um, obviously it helps when you score five goals in the first 45 minutes of your, your opening group game. And yeah, it looks like it'll be pretty much the same starting eleven for the game against Belgium. This evening, Belgium haven't beaten France since 1985 or something like that. So you'd expect that they're going to, you know, they'll, they'll go on and, and, and complete the job and, and book their place in the quarterfinals. But it's been in the quarterfinals that France have tripped up in almost every major tournament over the past 10 years. And I think that when things start to go wrong for France is in that unbridgeable chasm between the group phase and, and the knockout rounds. But yeah, so far, and despite the enormous potential for strife, that always exists with French national teams, all seems to be quite smooth sailing. Uh, speaking of French-related strife, how's this for a gear change? A Senate report says Liverpool fans were unfairly blamed for the scenes at the Champions League final. The French government had initially blamed Liverpool supporters and the proliferation of fake tickets for the chaos that led to fans being tear-gassed and robbed in Paris. This report, entitled Champions League Final, an unavoidable fiasco, concluded that dysfunctional mistakes were made at every level. Um, Tom, you detailed this uh, in a great piece for The Athletic last month. The outrage in France had, had matched what we'd seen in England, hadn't it? What, what's the reaction been like to this report? Yeah, I mean, it's been in the continuity of the reaction ever since the day of the final. It became apparent extremely quickly that Gérald Dalmanin, the, the Minister of the Interior, and Didier Lallemand, the, the, the head of the Paris police, were spreading lies. That was obvious the day after. There was exactly the same sense of outrage in France as there was over here, coupled with the shame that they felt at, at the fact that, you know, these were sort of very high-ranking public officials who were trying to cover their own backs by laying all the blame on, on the Liverpool fans. I, I think the French Senate has to be applauded for having led such a thorough 
review of what happened. There was a bit of debate at some point about whether Liverpool fans and Real Madrid fans would be given an opportunity to express themselves. They were given that opportunity. And, you know, thankfully, what are we, a month and a half on from the game, an official account of, of what happened is now in the public domain. Liverpool fans, as you say, and also Real Madrid fans have been absolved of, of all blame. And what would be good now would be for the for the French government, for for you know for for Gérald Darmanin to, to to admit fault. I mean, what's what's happened in in the last couple of weeks as more and more evidence has come out over the course of these Senate hearings is that they've been sort of cautiously backtracking on on all the claims they made you know on the day of the final in the hours following the game and, and in the days that followed i think it's about time that they actually admitted fault the management of the supporters before the game was clearly a catastrophic error but i think you know they, they need to admit as well that you know they, they basically tried to instigate a cover-up i think there needs to be an admission of of responsibility i think there needs to be an apology um but yeah i think I think, it, I think it's reassuring that relatively soon after the game, this public account of, of what happened now exists and all the complaints of the Liverpool fans and also the Real Madrid fans have, have basically been upheld, which I think will be, will be a relief to them, you know, given the awful trauma of, of what so many of them went through. Yeah, vindication for Liverpool and Real Madrid supporters then. We'll see if there's any knock-on ramifications for the policing of football in France uh, going forward next season. Right, it's an off-season pod, which means it's Transfer Talk Ahoy next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This is the Totally Purple Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Players making moves with increasing frequency as July rolls on. Some fairly significant happenings since Monday in the transfer market. Not least the confirmation of Raheem Sterling's move to Chelsea with accompanying farewell letter in all caps uh, and video too to his former Manchester City worshippers. What do you think about this one, Michael? Seems to be a lot of positivity in in the press. Maybe a bit of a split on Chelsea Twitter. Is he is he a good signing for Chelsea? I think he's he's done all right. I think he uh, sorry. I think he'll do all right. I think he's. Um... Just a very experienced Premier League player. His goal scoring record's really good, actually. When you look at the, his numbers per season, it is really impressive for a player who isn't a natural centre forward. I think a good thing about Sterling, I mean, he's been playing pretty much for a decade in the Premier League and he's never really had an injury. He's available for every game and I think that's quite, a, quite an underrated feature of him. I must say, I, when I saw the picture of him in a shirt, it's a long time since I've seen a new signing in a shirt that just looks so wrong. Do you know what I mean? It just looks really weird to see him. It's probably like... 
Probably Torres to Chelsea was the last time I've seen a player in a shirt and I've just thought that looks really, really strange. But that's not a comment on how he'll do. I think he'll he'll be a pretty consistent performer. He'll be in the LA Dodgers shirt for some uh, promo photos too uh, pretty soon, I reckon. Kaladu Kulubali looks like he's going to be following him, Tom. Um, this is an interesting one. One of those players who, who's been touted for a move to the Premier League and Chelsea specifically for years and years, it eventually finally comes off. He's, what, 31, four-year contracts? A bit of hang-wringing about that amongst Chelsea supporters if it means that somebody like Levi Colwell's going to be edged out. But But is he the answer? to the problem that Chelsea have had with the departures of Christensen and Rudiger. Our friend Julian Laurent says he's better than both of them put together. I mean, that is that is a claim. But I mean, yeah, he is he is the one of the best centre-backs in the world, Koulibaly, and he has been for the past five, six years. You know, on paper, he would appear to have everything you need to succeed in, in English football. And given the sticky position Chelsea found themselves in, having lost two, you know, senior centre-backs in Antonio Rudiger and, and, and Andreas Christensen to, to, have, to have, you know, replaced at least one of those with, with one of the best defenders around is, is a great bit of business. And I guess, you know, we wait to see now which other centre-back or centre-backs that they'll succeed in, in bringing in. But no, I mean, I'm, I'll be fascinated to see how, how Koulibaly does in, in the Premier League. I mean, I think he's, you know, if, if you were to draw up a list of, of the very best centre-backs in the game, he is right up there. So, yeah, to, to have brought in him and, and Sterling already, albeit Koulibaly hasn't yet been confirmed, is um, a really a really decent few days' business. Looks like Nathan Ake and potentially Presnel Kimpembe coming in too. Uh, elsewhere, Lisandro Martinez to Man United is apparently close, obviously. Plays for Ajax at the moment, which is one of the reasons why they're looking at him. Um, I'm quite interested in Wolves, though, Lindsay. Your team, obviously sort of strange transfer business maybe at 30 million pounds for Morgan Gibbs White is that not a little bit much to be asking for a player who only reached double appearances for league starts for the first time last season in the championship you've got to weigh in potential there Matt I think as well and also the fact that I don't think we're in a position to let Morgan Gibbs White go right now the introduction of uh, five subs is one of the most concerning things I think if you're a Leeds United fan if you're a Wolves fan and you look at the squad depth and the lists on the back of every single program from last season they were the shortest and from a Wolves point of view certainly not much has been going on until this last week and yeah we're going to move on to the signing we've made but that's one player so we can't be letting people go and we can't be letting them go for cheap because they've got to be replaced. And I know that Bruno Large wanted business done earlier in this window than it has been. Ruben Neves, I don't believe that he was ready to go. I don't think he wanted to leave. I know that his family are very settled in Wolverhampton. That surprises me sometimes, but but they are. And I think as soon as Matinho signed on for another year, then that would indicate to me that they'd want to carry on playing together for another year as well. So yeah, I can understand why at the moment, it feels like everything's a story about hanging on to a player that we already own, rather than who would be adding to the squad and that's a concern I think we need to be making more signings but certainly if Morgan Gibbs White was to go for 30 million which yeah is quite a hefty price tag then he would need to be replaced and uh, it isn't as easy to find not only a natural replacement for someone and their abilities but whether they're going to fit in with the dressing room and it's all about that at Wolves. Is there any evidence of any of of Wolves' Portuguese contingent having acquired a Wolverhampton accent? (laughs) Their children? Apparently, a couple of their children have. Right, OK. Because it's one of the joys of, you know, like the, the first few foreign players of the, the Premier League era. You think about 
Jan Mulby's sort of weird Scouse accent, Peter Schmeichel's sort of Mancunian lilt. I can't think of many footballers who've played in England who've adopted a sort of a, a Midlands accent. I was trying to scratch my head and think of any examples. I'm still waiting for the, the signpost saying Wolverhampton twinned with Portugal to arrive. But um, <laughs> maybe, maybe when the accents landed, that will happen. How are you feeling about my prediction then, Lindsay, that Wolves are going to struggle next season? The, the transfer that you mentioned is Nathan Collins, mm-hmm. £20.5 million pounds from Burnley. Not, not the sexiest of signings, but a signing nonetheless. You need more though, right? Oh, I need so much more. I mean, we're relying on players that showed average form last season becoming world beaters overnight. I mean, Jimenez hasn't got back to where he was. Fabio Silva's been allowed to go. So I I wasn't his biggest fan. I think there's a lot of development that needs to happen there. And that's probably part of this move. But he certainly got game time, which shows you that he was called upon because he was needed, probably because of the numbers situation I was talking about. Neto excites me. I think he is honestly going to be head and shoulders our best player next season. Reinforcing in defence isn't a bad idea. I think that Willy Bolly, who has been fantastic for us, but I I just think that he's over the brow of the hill of his peak. So to bring in someone like Nathan Collins, who's got presence, physical, I, I really like watching him for Burnley last season. So I was really delighted to see him come in. I also think it it enables a potential shake-up because it isn't necessarily just Max Kilman that he might replace. It could be at times Connor Cody and we can't keep expecting him to play every single minute every single season I do think that that we are two or three players short at the moment of really challenging do I think that we are in trouble I think there will be three worse teams than Wolves but I think we will be much nearer the bottom of the table than we were last season I wonder if Everton might be one of those three worst teams Um, Michael they've also been pinching Burnley centre-backs in Tarkovsky they've got a bit of money available to them having sold Richarlison are you confident that the people who make the decisions will spend that wisely I don't know I don't have a strong opinion either way on that to be honest but I do I must say I'm not that convinced by Lampard as a manager I, I just don't think he's He's done a great job anywhere. I think he did fine at Derby. I think he did fine at Chelsea. He's done fine at Everton. So, um, yeah, the management of the side would be my question mark rather than the recruitment. I think there was a slight concern about precisely how Everton fit all their attacking players into the side. Richardson's a very good player. But as long as Calvert-Lewin stays fit, I think they can get over that. Would it be wrong to hope that Everton spend the Richarlison money unwisely? Premier League clubs' recruitment strategies are so slick these days. You know, the use of data and everything, you get much fewer massive transfer errors. And from a purely neutral perspective, it is always quite entertaining when a club spends a big wad of cash on a player who they've maybe seen in one game or who's sort of very briefly flickered at a major tournament. Not to wish ill particularly on Everton, but if, if some Premier League clubs could try and make some catastrophically ill-thought-out transfers this summer. I think I think we'd all appreciate it. Tom, it's spot on. I've got an article out tomorrow on The Athletic making the same case about Barcelona. And we're all meant to be appalled at how badly they've been run over the last decade. But, I mean, they were the best club, uh, best team in the world. They're the largest revenues of any sports team in the world. If they'd been properly run, La Liga would be even worse than the Bundesliga. It'd be a waste of time. It's only these complete idiots in charge of super clubs that is making football unpredictable. I completely agree with you. I, I hope every Premier League team spends money really badly. Every Premier League team should have to allocate a portion of their transfer budget to a sort of fan-controlled 
pool and then they have some vote on Twitter and whoever comes out top, they have to buy them and they have to start them in a certain proportion of, of league matches. Well, the question there would be how many clubs' recruitment would be improved by that method? Because there would be a couple. <laughs> There's your next article, yeah. I'm looking at this list, Tom, of PSG players who... who were left at home for the pre-season tour and seeing some prime candidates maybe for for Everton there. Wijnaldum, Icardi, Kazawa, Draxler, Herrera and Idrissa Gay, former Everton man, of course. Um, any of those actually being linked with anybody? It's the problem, isn't it? When you, when you leave these players at home or basically say they are up for sale, then you're kind of halving their, their asking price, essentially. Um, are these all going to be left at the last minute and, and we'll see Newcastle and Everton? purchase some of these players I mean the, the tricky thing that PSG have got is that pretty much all of these players consider themselves Champions League level you know some of them arguably still are they're all on enormous contracts and, and they're generally all quite happy in Paris I mean PSG have been trying to sell Julian Draxler for years and every time you know he's asked about what he wants to do he's like well I, I quite like Paris you know I'm, I'm quite you know city suits me well so I don't mind you know just, just getting the odd minute here and there and so you end up with this enormously bloated squad and it was interesting Christophe Galtier, the new PSG coach, in his very first press conference, one of the one of the you know the most sort of eye catching things he said was, "The squad is too big. I don't want to I don't want to work with a, a squad of this size." So it, it looks like there is a renewed desire to to shift some of these players. PSG are working again with Antero Henrique, who was their previous sporting director, who is one of the very few people who's worked at PSG in recent years who's who's shown any kind of nous when it comes to shifting players like this on big contracts off the books. I mean, the players you cited, I mean, you know, there's there's, there's a, a few who, who played it in England before. I've seen Maro Icardi being linked with Wolves. I'm not sure I can see that coming to fruition. Maro Icardi basically just needs a team who are going to allow him to live in the six-yard box because that is basically all he does. Basically, you're just looking for a team that creates a lot of chances and, you know, sort of struggles to, to convert them. I thought maybe Levin Kozawa for Everton, if, we, if we're trying to sort of allocate uh, potential landing points for some of these players. Everton are a little bit short at left back and Kozawa was was on another level to like the Draxlers and the Icardis last season. And he basically didn't get a look in at all. And as a consequence became sort of a, a symbol of, of how bloated this, this PSG squad is. Recent history suggests that PSG will struggle to shift these players because they earn so much money and because they will not accept dropping down a level. And because so many of them seem to basically accepted this kind of like twilight existence of occasional substitute appearances and starts in the cup competitions. But at the same time that, you know, there are decent players. I mean, Jorginho Wijnaldum, who would have thought that he would prove to be such a flop? I mean, you know, the space of only a few months after his arrival from Liverpool and he was basically being written off as a flop. So, I mean, there's, you know, there's one decent signing if if someone's prepared to put their um, put their hands in their pocket for starters. Lots of work for Kylian Mbappe to do over the next couple of weeks sorting these transfers out. All right, that's transfer talk done. Next, we'll get... Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Retro. 
It is the 14th of July for us listener, uh, just five days after celebrating Italy's defeat of France in the 2006 World Cup final. On this day, Italian football was brought back down to earth when the Italian FA announced the punishment after an investigation into a major match-fixing scandal. Known as the Calciopoli scandal, it involved the bribing of referees and match-fixing in Italian football in the 2004-05 and 05-06 seasons. The worst punishment handed down to the main five clubs involved was suffered by Juventus, stripped of the Italian championship titles they'd won in 05 and 06, relegated to Serie B 40607 with a 30 point deduction although that was later reduced to 9 on appeal of course as that was rumbling on the World Cup in Germany was happening Uh, the sounds there of Grosso's goal in the semi-final of the 2006 World Cup for Italy against Germany. Can I just say, I find that pretty much the most emotional bit of commentary that exists. Even, I mean, even, even more emotional even than Hal robson Carney's goal against Belgium, which I may have mentioned on this podcast before. There's something about the commentary on the Grosso goal and then the Del Piero goal as well just after... I mean, at the culmination of one of the the great World Cup games, I think one of the few games that you you felt the second it finished, if not before, that you had you had watched a a slow burning classic. The Italian commentary on that, I mean, never never fails to move me. Which I mean, I have I have no Italian ancestry at all. I have no connection to to Italy, but I, for some reason, I find <laughs> those particular bits of commentary really really. Um, yeah, really powerful. Yeah, I made the mistake uh, yesterday of watching that with the retrofitted FIFA commentary from Jim Proudfoot, which is essentially Grosso. Oh, surely that's the winner at this point of the game. Um, not quite. Well, it's, as, it's like quite it's as like the alternative commentary on um, Jeff Hurst's hat trick goal in the nineteen sixty six World Cup final, and it's just. I mean, obviously, it's hard to compare it to the the, the Kenneth Wollstone home masterclass that that most people are familiar with, but. And I've, uh, with apologies, I forget the commentator's name, but he says something like, it's Hurst. Hugh Johns? Yeah, it could be Hugh Johns. And it's like, Hurst, can he make it three? He has. He has. So can he make it three when he'd obviously just made it four? He has, he has. I mean, you know, it's not bad. There are better <laughs> commentaries of that goal available. It's not so Ken. Back to 2006. Michael, what are your main memories of this tournament? Obviously, the headbutt heard around the world is kind of the standout thing. Anything else that you remember? I just remember the joy of completing my last A-level and being able to watch the rest of the tournament guilt-free. But yeah, I th- it was a really good tournament, actually. Particularly the knockout stages, again, might be related to my A-levels finishing, but the knockout stages I remember really well. And that semi-final you mentioned, Germany Italy is one of the best games I've ever seen. I mean, it was just, it, despite the fact it was 0-0 for 118 minutes, it was so tight, it was so tense. And there were lots of good knockout games. I remember just being absolutely enthralled by that Mexico-Argentina game in the second round where Maxi Rodriguez scored an outrageous chest and volley. And, you know, just good size. There was, you wouldn't look back and say, like, France or Italy or any of those teams were kind of the best teams we've seen. But in terms of individuals, it felt like, a lot of those sides, maybe it was the last part of a real kind of golden generation or a, a group of players you look on really fondly. And yeah, a couple of games I've watched back, I've watched the final back a few years ago 
And I was surprised how good it was. Again, I had a memory that it was quite tight and tense, but it was actually relatively open. And there was a brilliant, brilliant 15 minute spell at the start of the second half where Thierry Henry and Fabio Cannavaro are just engaged in this almost one-on-one battle constantly. And Cannavaro just gets the better of Henry in every single incident. So yeah, I've got I've got really good memories of this World Cup, I must say. It wouldn't wouldn't go down as my favourite. But after 2002, which I thought was a real disappointment, it was good. And I wasn't out there, obviously, but it sounded like the kind of... Or, there was a really good vibe to it in, in Germany. It felt, it felt like everyone had a really good time and no crowd trouble or anything like that. It was yeah, a good tournament. And the final, packed with incident. I mean, Marco Materazzi, more famous for getting headbutted than for giving away a penalty and scoring in a World Cup final. That Zidane headbutt, Tom, it came after his Penenka penalty. How did that affect his, his legacy in France? Well, I mean, I think initially there was just a complete shock. And of course, you know, as I'm sure everyone recalls, watching the game on TV, it wasn't immediately apparent what had happened because the, the headbutt was off camera. There was a stoppage. You could see Italian players crowding around the ref as they as they are wont to do. And then that heart-stopping replay of Zidane just planting his head in, in Materazzi's chest. The French commentator Thierry Gillardi sort of summed up the feelings of the nation and he, the second he saw the replay he launched into this quite sort of like paternalistic flow of consciousness. Was, oh no Zinedine, oh no, what have you done? You know, not here, not now, not after everything you've done, just like complete disbelief. Then I think at the same time that feeling that that was it, that, that without Zidane, you know, France would, would now not go on to win. I mean, they could quite conceivably have won, given that it went to penalties. But I, th- I think there was a feeling that, you know, in that moment, France's World Cup ended. Um, but then very quickly, he was forgiven. I mean, the very next day, the France squad returned to Paris. There was a reception. And Jacques Chirac, who was the president at the time, gave a speech where he, he basically completely absolved Zidane of, of blame. I think the in in the sort of the, the, the morning papers, there was a lot of, you know, what an awful example, you know, Lekeep said, you know, what what do we tell our children? You know, everyone, you know we've, they've all stayed up to watch the game and they've seen this hero of, of France, you know, doing this unpardonable thing. But I think because it was his, his very last game and because he'd, he'd had such an incredible tournament, I mean, France were awful in the group phase, suddenly come to life against Spain in the last 16 and Zidane's at the, the heart of everything. And then against Brazil in the quarterfinals, he produces arguably his greatest ever performance in any shirt, just runs the game from start to finish, you know, step overs, pirouettes, sombreros, like the absolute works, and then scores that slightly overhit Panenka uh, in, the, in the final, comes very close to, to scoring a header that, that Gianluigi Buffon tipped over the bar. So he'd basically done all he could. So yeah, initial shock, but but very quickly gave way to, you know, gave way to forgiveness. And, and I think the sort of feeling today is, you know, what a shame it had to end like that. I don't think it's really tarnished his legacy in, in the way that people perhaps feared it might at the time. We were all such big fans of his. I think world football had, had just got Zidane and taken him under their wing because he was just that sort of player that, you know, the Penenka and just being able to do the unexpected. I just loved his volley as well in the Champions League final and thought, you know, that was what got me. I was just like, I'm going to follow Zidane forevermore. But yeah, it was a shame that's the way it ended. I felt though that this tournament, it was billed as like the golden generation one. And yes, there were lots of players that we wanted to see have their final swan song, if as it were. But I actually think it was about the new generation 
generation coming through as well. I mean, this was the World Cup where Messi scored his first World Cup goal. I remember really being impressed by Lukas Podolski for Germany. Um, I think he might have even won Young Player of the Tournament for this, but he definitely scored two against Sweden. I remember watching that and thinking, oh, this is a young player. And we all, we all watch World Cups and think, who's going to be the next shining star? When you said about Argentina as well, I do think that the finish by Cambiasso after that 25-yard pass, that was fantastic for a team effort. So there were so many things that we could take away. It isn't my favourite World Cup of all time, and certainly not the favourite end to a player that I loved watching in, in Zidane. But I would say for generations coming through, I, I really liked it for, for the young ones that were getting their chance in this one as well and perhaps stole a few of the headlines in the end. Lindsay mentions that the Cambiasso goal. I think what, one of my sort of most enduring memories of that tournament are watching that game in a pub uh, just off the Strand in central London. I was working for the British Council at the time in a, a temp job and their office is just off Trafalgar Square. Found a pub that was showing the game and it was I think it was like a lunchtime kickoff and sat there watching Argentina put on this absolute masterclass against um, Serbia and Montenegro as it was at the time. And then they score that incredible goal after that, you know, sweeping, you know, multiple pass move. And just feeling this this flush of like complete joy at, at watching this, this fantastic team scoring this fantastic goal. And then just looking around the pub, which is full of people who'd, who'd gone down on their lunch breaks to, to take in the football. And we all just sort of looked around at each other and then everyone applauded. All these strangers in this central <laughs> London pub, which sounds naff and twee as hell and very sort of 2012 London Olympics opening ceremony, but it, it genuinely happened. And it was one of those great moments of a bunch of neutrals watching a World Cup match and, you know, sharing this fantastic moment. And I remember thinking, Argentina are the best team in the world. No one can possibly produce football like that. You know, they will absolutely win the tournament. I'd never been more certain of anything in my life. And of course, they lost on penalties to Germany, which was a sort of a, a, an early lesson to me that it is possible to peak in the group phase. And that if you can avoid peaking in, in the group phase, as France and Italy demonstrated in this tournament, it's not a bad approach to take. I don't know whether you remember as well the advert for this tournament. It was an Adidas one. Do you, do you remember it featuring Zidane? in the lead up to this because I, I remember seeing on social media I think it was last week the 1998 you know the one in the airport the famous advert um, and that was doing the rounds and I remember thinking the 2006 one was fantastic um, the only thing being that Zidane is front and centre I mean he's incredible in this advert it's got you know Beckham and Raul Ronaldinho in it Jose vamos si Paris uno dos y tres si se caca Zidane Bacon, Defoe, Dan, Messi, Beckenbauer, Beckenbauer. <laughs> Um, but of course, obviously, by the end and the headbutt, you probably, if you're Adidas, are thinking that advert didn't quite live up to the billing. But yeah, I enjoyed that one as well. And just just quickly on Zidane as, as he's come up again, just wanted to remind everyone that, that Michael thinks Zidane <laughs> is a fraud and uh, should be remembered as such. <laughs> not, not a fraud, but it wasn't very good that often. I mean, yeah, <gasps> he probably had two, probably had two good seasons. In his career, he was generally very good at tournaments, which is why he's got such a reputation. But well, that's when you want to be good, right? Uh, maybe I prefer the guy who plays well all year rather than the one who plays well in two or three games. But I thought he was a bit of a joke in that. F I mean, he, he played really well in that final, but he's just, you know, it summed up today. He was just desperate to be the centre of attention, you know, whatever for good or for bad. If you got a penalty in the World Cup final, you penenka it, 
if it's not going your way with five minutes to go, you get sent off. So you're the main story. I mean, it was a story of his career. Incredibly selfish player, I thought Zidane. But he was good. he was really good against Spain, and he was very good against Brazil as well. He did he did turn it on. To be fair, having been pretty mediocre for the previous three years, yeah. Desperate to be the centre of attention, not very good that often. That feels like a nice description of England at this World Cup and under Sven Juran Eriksson as well, Michael. Unless we forget, this was the the golden generation, but it was more about the wags in Baden Baden, knocked out eventually by that winker Cristiano Ronaldo on penalties. It's kind of peak Sven, wasn't it? Perfect way for him to go out. Uh, lots of hype, don't live up to it, get knocked out on penalties. Yeah, I often think that people kind of put these three or the three Sven tournaments together because obviously they were all quarterfinal exits. But I think 2002 England were okay, a little bit unlucky with some injuries and that kind of thing, but played all right. 2004, I think they were really exciting, close to the best team in the tournament. If Rooney had stayed fit, I don't know whether they would have won it. There were four or five teams that were were pretty good, but they would have had a decent chance. 2006, they were awful. I mean, really, really boring. Just absolutely no cohesion to the play. The players who did play well, I think, were Hargreaves and Michael Carrick played very well in one game. But with all due respect, the kind of players where if they're your best players, maybe it's because the guys who are Ballon d'Or contenders aren't doing it. But yeah, they were they were just really pitiful to watch. I think that game against Portugal was pretty poor and the tournament was almost better when England were, were out of it, to be honest. Do, do you know what I mean? I think the, I think that was on the same day as Brazil-France and was before that. And then the, the subsequent games were all really, really good. But I mean, a little bit like two years later where England didn't qualify. It was just night. Like, you didn't have to worry about England. You could just sit back and enjoy the football. But yeah. England, England completely stunk the place out of that tournament. They were they were awful, really. Honourable mention to Joe Cole for that goal against Sweden and um, also to Peter Grouch for, for pulling that Trinidad defender's dreadlocks to make sure that he could get himself a World Cup goal. <laughs> God, uh, they, do you remember well. how bad they were in that game? Do you remember that? <laughs> they had to put Beckham at right back for the last 20 minutes to get across it. It eventually worked, but blimey, that was bad, wasn't it? Miss you, Sven. Also, that World Cup saw Ronaldo, a phenomenal Ronaldo, score his then record-breaking 15th World Cup finals goal in the last 16 against Ghana. He couldn't stop Brazil losing to France in the quarters, though. Now, while we're talking retro stuff, to celebrate 30 years of the Premier League, the Athletic have been spending the summer counting down their top 50 individual performances from the competition's history. Today, at number 20, a title-winning display, Patrick Vieira's performance in the 2-2 draw at White Hart Lane that saw Arsenal clinch the title at the home of rivals Tottenham in 2004. They finished the season unbeaten a few weeks later. They haven't been champions since. Other athletic articles. Here's one for Nick Miller's piece on the ongoing women's AFCON tournament. Did you know it was ongoing, listener? Um, I didn't, but Nick did. So much so, he's actually been to Morocco and he's written about what you might have missed. And there's also something up today focusing on Nigeria and their US influence. This is a tournament, Lindsay, we ought to be paying a bit more attention to, not least because it's got a great acronym. We, well, yeah, we thought so. Um, <laughs> Nick Miller brought it to our attention as well. So on uh, the Athletic Women's Football Podcast Euro edition from last night. So Wednesday's one, we spoke to Alistair Howarth, uh, who's out in Morocco covering that tournament and got the lowdown on who's doing well. Players as well from WSL that have been shining. We've got Ashley Plumtree from Leicester City who's out there. Spurs player as well, Rosella Ayane. So we we get that from him. Also Barbara Bander and the testosterone levels. We discussed that too. So it might be worth tuning in for Wednesday's episode. 
Yes, please do do that. Uh, that will do us for today, though. Jimbo will be back on Monday, rounding up what happened in the Euros at the weekend and plenty more transfer talk besides. Uh, until then, many thanks to Lindsay, to Michael, to Tom and to guest producer Steve, mainly to you, though, listener, for joining us. We'll speak to you again on Monday. From all of us here, though, it's bye for now. You've been listening to The Total Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on The Athletic app and discover bonus content by following The Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. Total.